Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 181. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 181 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning engineer Gary Noble, known for his work with Amy Winehouse, Jesse J., Wycliffe Jean, Fuji's, Nas, Josh Stone, and of course, he's known for his longtime collaboration with producer Salam Remy. Uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of things, uh, talking about him growing up in Jamaica, moving to New York, and of course, his transition eventually to Miami, where he is currently at. So great conversation coming up here with Gary Noble here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So here on Working Class Audio, you know that if you're a longtime listener, you hear me ask people how they get their work. And I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say that 99 to possibly 100% of the people I've asked say that they uh, get their work via word of mouth. So what does that mean? That means that they do good work, they take care of their clients, and as a result, they get either rehired or recommended to be hired by other people. It's a circular thing. So maybe you're in a position right now where you don't have a lot of work and you're thinking, well, what I got to do is, you know, get some business cards or do a social media campaign or take out an ad in a magazine. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to suggest you don't do that. Um, I'm not saying that can't play a part. Sure, it could play a part. It's It's an extra tool. But at the heart of it, it seems that based on the number of conversations I've had, I'm going to just say that I think my guests are right. I think you got to go out, press the flesh, got to go out, meet, meet people in your particular area of audio, whether you do forensic audio, location sound, music, music for games or sound for games, uh, go out and meet with the people in your particular field that are your potential clients and, you know, stay in touch, have coffee. You know what a big fan of coffee I am. So think about that. I'm not trying to discourage you from arming yourself up with you know, business cards and being prepared in that way, but really think it through. It's something to consider that instead of spending your money on that and all your time researching all that, maybe put your time and efforts into working on your craft. If you're a mix engineer, maybe you need to pull out some old, old files and, you know, reapproach some things and look at some mixes that you've done. And if they didn't hit it out of the ballpark, maybe you can analyze those and figure out why, or maybe you could uh, remix those. And you know, who knows what will come out of that, but a better understanding of your own craft and a better understanding of your clients, I think is going to yield uh, good results for the future. So that's just something to keep in mind. And one thing I want to, of course, remind you of is to stop by gearsluts.com and check out audio life. That's the sub forum that working class audio sponsors. And that's got life hacks, career work stuff, work life balance, health, planes, trains, and automobiles. These are some of the uh, topics that they have on there. So if you are, you know, just kind of had it up to here with gear and you just need a little break from it and you want to talk about something else, well, uh, head on over to uh, gearsluts.com and check that out. That's uh, audio life. Yeah. Also want to encourage you to stop on over to Universal Audio's website. That's uaudio.com. I'm going to point you to the Apollo Artist Sessions in particular there's about a dozen of these videos, and they're sessions where they're using uh, the Apollo interfaces with the uh, Unison mic technology. There's one in particular with Vance Powell, uh, where he's doing a session over in his studio at uh, Sputnik Sound over there in Berry Hill in Nashville. You gotta check that one out. But uh, all these are super cool. So I'll put a link in the show notes. That's for the Apollo Artist Sessions at UAudio's website. So uaudio.com. Be sure to check that out. Also want to remind you, if you get the podcast through uh, some different methods other than the Working Class Audio website, and you have never been, uh, stop on by workingclassaudio.com. Uh, check out the website, roam around. We've got some great stuff there. We've got some uh, 
bonus content. We have a guest suggestion forum if you want to suggest somebody that you'd like me to interview. Uh, of course, we've got the full podcast archive, all at this point, all 181 episodes. Always remember, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So check us out there. Well, that's about it. I think it's time we get down to it. So let's talk to our friend, Gary Noble, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Gary, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. I got to thank our mutual friend, Loic. Great guy. Great guy. Where did you grow up? I was born in Jamaica, but uh-huh. I grew up in New York. When did you move to New York? Man, too, too long ago. 70, in okay. the 70s. <laughs> when I got to New York, I was like 13, 14. When I got there, it was right at the explosion of, even though I was only on the street level, it was on the ground of the hip-hop scene and the whole punk rock and everything else. And of course, you know, we had the Caribbean influence going on. And so I was exposed to a lot of different cultures and the music and the food and the people. And, you know, because New York is a virtual melting pot. Like you can walk down the block and meet people from different, 10 different backgrounds, like 10 different cultures. And it just works. I don't know how it does, but it just works. And yeah. then all the, all the influences go into the music. So I grew up being exposed to a lot of different styles. And I think it actually helped me to do what I do now. How is that transition from Jamaica to the United States? It wasn't difficult, I guess, because I've always been like a very open-minded person. And I guess because I was exposed to different cultures, even in Jamaica, I would meet people from Europe and Asia. You know, you know when they come there to vacation, members of my family migrated overseas they would always come back home they would bring friends with them and stuff like that so so I was kind of ex- exposed to it I was already in tune with what was going on overseas so when I came it, it was a it wasn't a hard transition at all the hardest part was a lot of people at first they had trouble understanding me because my dialect was so thick mm-hmm. but I adapted like really really fast to it I just changed up just so that I could uh most of the people were receptive to me, but there were some that would make fun and stuff like that. You know how kids are. But oh, I just yeah. ignored that, and I just adapted to it. And uh, I was drawn to the music, like, almost immediately. Like, what was going on with music. And I, I started DJing when I was 15. So at what point did music and audio become so strong in your life that you realized, I have to do this as part of my job? I would say it was a few years later. While I was still in high school, you know, I was a DJ and I was doing parties and and different functions and stuff like that. And I noticed that when I would play a record, like I could pick a record up, look at the label, and I kind of had an idea of how it would sound already because each label had a distinct sonic signature. And I would look at the credits and see that there was a certain mixing engineer, a certain mastering engineer. And I would listen to the record and say, okay, why does the drums on this one sound like this? And then the vocals on this one sound like that. And I like this. I don't like this, this, and that. And I wanted to learn how to create what I was hearing. And a friend of mine that lived on the block, uh, Mr. Davidson, he invited me to go to the studio with him one night. And I went. And as soon as I walked in, I said, okay, this is where I need to be. And that's how <laughs> it all started. It's amazing how we encounter those situations in our youth where you walk into a place or you you uh, encounter a situation that you just instantly Yeah, I just know. knew I just knew right away that I needed to be in the recording studio. I wanted to be an engineer. Like it it just came to me like that and it didn't happen overnight. It took a couple of years to do the transition, but it you know, I kept working at it. I just knew what well, that's what I wanted to do. I kept going at it, going at it until I was able to fully Transition over to just being an engineer full time. Mr. Davidson, was he a mentor to you? In some ways, he had a you know a regular job. He worked for a company in Jersey. He had a but he always did music on the side. And he introduced me to this engineer, Franklin Grant, that also lived on my block. But I wasn't friends with him yet till Mr. Davidson introduced us. I went to see over him one night, and I stayed the entire night. And the end of the night, I said, Frank, listen, man, I really want to become an engineer. And he looked at me, he said, okay, if you're serious, go to uh, IAR, which is Institute of Audio Research, which at the time was the only school that did that kind of stuff in New York. There was no other schools. This is in the 80s, so mid-80s. There was no schools that offered that. It's, it's, a, it's a school that's on, it's a few blocks from NYU. 
And it was mm-hmm. run by um, Al Grundy. I don't know if you ever heard that name before. And um, I decided, I said, okay, I'll do that. So I went and I did the MRT program, which stands for Modern Recording Technology Program. Uh-huh. And when I finished, I came back to him and said, okay, I did, you know, I held up my piece of paper. I did the program. I'm ready. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, you know what? 20 people have asked me or told me that they wanted to be engineers. And I told each one of them what I told you. And you're the only one who went and did it. So he said, come on, let's go. And then that's where my journey started. That seems to be a common thing in in the interviews that I have with people is persistence. And you have that persistence at an early age to just keep pressing and until it happened. Right. Does that continue to this day? I still do it because, uh, for instance, with everything now is digital, right? And I come from the analog world. So I saw the whole digital thing, the transition going on. So I had to teach myself digital audio. So I bought Pro Tools LE. I taught myself how to use it. I spoke to a lot of mastering guys about digital and I read up about dither and quantization errors and all like, so I literally had to teach myself that because I knew that's where shift was going. So while some other people were kind of like pushing aside, oh, I don't like digital. It sounds horrible. I don't want to work with it. You know, I'm only doing Neve consoles or SSL consoles and this and that. I kind of embraced it because I I wanted to stay viable. So I I, kind of embraced it. I saw the opportunities that it presented. I saw how the editing features could make things a lot better and easier for us engineers. And I have to admit, too, at the early stages of digital, I didn't like the sound either. But it got better and better as time went along. And then when Pro Tools HD came out, that's when I felt like, okay, now it's really ready to make a transition where I can just record, edit, and mix on Pro Tools HD. Before that, I was using Digital Performer because Digital Performer, for me, at the time, sounded better than mm-hmm. the earlier versions of Pro Tools. But now all the DAWs, the quality-wise, is basically the same. It just comes down to workflow now for me. Now I use Pro Tools, Logic, and uh, Studio One from Personas. This early stuff we're talking about happened in New York. Right. And you live in Miami now. What's happened between New York and Miami in all these years? How we ended up coming to Miami, uh, we were working on a project in New York when 9-11 happened with an artist from the UK named Miss Dynamite. This is 2001. And we started working on the project. She went back to London, and then she was coming back for her second trip, and 9-11 happened. And she was like, I don't want to come to New York, you know, because all the terrorist activity and everything was going on. And... Being that we were there and witnessed everything that went on, we also needed a break from it. So we said, listen, let's go to Miami and spend two weeks and let's work on the project, you know, finish the writing, the recording, all the parts and get the whole album, you know, like a cohesive whole. So we came down to Miami, went to work at South Beach Studios, Mm -hmm. which is in the Marlin Hotel. It's owned by, uh, well, not anymore. It used to be owned by Chris Blackwell at the time. And we went there and... We started out doing two weeks and ended up being here for five months. We did, but not straight. Like, we did two weeks. We go home for a week, then come back for a month, then go home for a week. And at the end of the trip, um, I was uh, speaking with Salam Remy, who was the producer on the project. I was his main guy for, like, 15 years. I worked together with him on, like, everything from the Fuji's to Tony Braxton to Amy Winehouse, you know, like, all over the place. But at that time, he was like, I'm really feeling like we should move to Miami and be let Miami be the base. And then we go to New York when we need to do it. Because when we, when, uh, when we were in New York, we flew out a lot. We went to LA, we went to London, we were all over the place. But since moving to Miami, when we have to work with clients, with clientele, as soon as we let them know where we are, they're like, okay, we... Um, Let's let's make some arrangements. We we get back to you, know, <laughs> and then they come here. So I don't have to travel as much. Sometimes I miss it, but other times I'm like, you know what? Th- this is great. This works out perfectly. Um, <laughs> I don't have to be away from my family and stuff like that. But that's what that's what's been happening. So that's the major shift in New York. I travel more here. I travel less. <laughs> you and Salam met in New York. Yes, I met him in '89, and obviously you were with him for 15 years. So that. You know, you guys must have hit it off. We clicked from day one and we still work together now, but I'm not his day-to-day guy anymore because 
is that I just have too much on my plate. So what he says is you have other people come in and do like all the recording and editing, and then I just do the mixing. But before, in the beginning, I did everything. I did all the recording, all the editing, the mixing. Like, I did everything. I learned about MIDI and how to hook up the stuff and the Roland XBX sync box. And, like, I learned all that stuff. So I became like a, a jack-of-all-trades in the studio. I even helped, I even helped build his studio. <laughs> so I got to, like, get a real ground-up education of it. But my forte is mixing. Where I always shine was with the mixing. Like that just came, I don't know, natural to me. How did you meet? What was this? What were the circumstances oh, of you two? Uh, Franklin was good friends with Salam's father. And he told me about them and took me by the studio to meet them. And the rest is history. And we just clicked. I met his dad, Van, and we started talking. They said, hey, you got to meet my son. And I met Salam and we started talking about music and you know, he's he was heavy into hip hop at the time, and he was playing me stuff that he was doing, and it was it was exciting and new. They showed me their studio and what they were doing and stuff like that. I said, "Hey, you know what? It would be great to to be a part of this." So I used to just go down and help out at first. He would call me, "Hey, Gary, I'm doing something. Can you come through?" And I go and help out. And then one day he said, "Listen, man, I like your vibe. I like the way you work. The stuff is coming out really great." We'd like you to just come on board and be our full-time guy. At that time, was he working with high-profile people? Yes, he was. He was doing a lot of remixes for a lot of big artists, well, mostly hip-hop stuff, but some R&B stuff, some soul stuff, a couple of dance things, not too much, but he was doing a lot of um, hip-hop artists, New York hip-hop artists at the time that were big at the time. And the first big record that we did was... Uh, Hot Stepper. Here comes a Hot Stepper with Annie Kamosi. And then from there on, we just kept doing our stuff. Then after that, we did the Fugees. They were signed to Columbia at the time. Yeah, we did the Fugees, the Mona Lisa remix. And then we did another record. And then we worked on a score with them and did Fuji La. And wow. from there, it just, it just took off. I don't want to get too detailed here, but for just you know, for audiences to have a sense of how does that work, were you paid by the day or the hour or a salary? Well, in the very beginning, I was more like on a salary type thing with a, like a quarterly bonus based on the products that we did. And then afterwards, it switched to by the day for recording and um, by the mix for mixing. And then, you know, if you have to do a recall, there's a recall rate, which is usually like half price or whatever. But that's how you usually go. So it's by the hour. Like if you're recording, it would be by hourly rate or if I'm doing a, the entire album or whatever, the label might say, okay, since you're recording everything, you know, let's do a day rate. Well, you know, what can you offer me? And then we, we come to a, some type of uh, compromise on the rate and we figure out something since I'm recording a whole album. Mm. The editing was, was um, part of it too. So when I recorded and edited, I would get paid the recording rate. But then when I mixed, I got paid a mix rate. And the mix rate was just a flat rate for the mix. Let's just take that 15-year period where you were doing everything. Let's just analyze th that time period for a second. Were there any great moments of clarity for you in that 15-year period? One of the things I learned really quickly, I mean, I have to thank Frank for you know giving me insight on it. But one of the things I learned really quickly is how to do my job as an engineer, but not get in the way of the creativity of the artists and the producers and the musicians and stuff and to really listen to everyone, not do things the way that I think it should be done, but give them what they want, but make sure that on the technical side, it's done properly so when it's captured, it's captured in the best way. And it's like um, the analogy that I've always used is like being a fly on the wall. A fly could be on the wall, but you don't see it unless you look directly on it. I was the same way. It's like, even though I'm a big guy, I'm six, six feet tall, I was in the studio working, but... I didn't draw any attention to myself. I was just focused on capturing the magic on tape, on Pro Tools, whatever we were doing, and making sure that the sounds were properly captured, properly molded, everything was in place, that they were comfortable. Like when I was recording vocals, I always made sure that the vocalist was comfortable and that their headphones were okay and everything was fine so that when they're performing, they don't have to think about anything but their performance. I always put the music first. What's coming? If there was something wrong, I had to find a way to fix it. And a lot of times I had to do it 
discreetly without making sure, without bringing too much attention to it because it would interrupt their creative vibe. So that's one of the things that I learned um, really quickly. And at first, it, it was a little bit of a struggle, but after a while, it just became second nature. That's interesting. You, you mentioned how, like, if there is something wrong, how you've got to solve the problem discreetly because you can you know, do everything you can to make somebody comfortable. But the minute something goes south, like, you know, Hey, the left side of my headphones aren't working kind of thing would be, would be a good example of how to, how to quickly solve the problem. Give them a new so pair of headphones. Don't even try to figure out what's going on. Why just give them a new pair of headphones. Okay. Here. And just say, and give the system swap out the headphones and just keep it yeah. moving quickly. And while he's doing it, talk to them. Hey, no, the last verse was pretty good, but, I think if you do another take, I think you really nail it and stuff like that. It's like you have to keep their 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 spirit, their vibe, like focused on the job at hand, and don't let them start to get. Once the artist gets frustrated, it's hard to get a good performance out of them. So I always made sure they were comfortable, they were at ease. And a lot of times, if if they weren't feeling like up to it, I would let them relax a little bit. It's okay, you know, relax. You know, you want them call someone or you want to go out in the lounge and chill out for a little bit or whatever, or just talk. To, and then I'll go out there and I'll just talk to them and get to know them or whatever. And then sometimes just taking their mind off of things for five or 10 minutes relaxes them enough where they can go back in the booth and, and perform. I, I did sessions where the, the artist was nervous with people and I, I asked everyone to leave and I turn off the lights in the control room all the way and turn on the lights low in the booth and, just let them do them. So listen, everybody's gone. It's just me. And I'm just going to hit record and let, let you do what you have to do. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to interrupt. I just want you to zone in on what you're trying to say and how you want to say it and just do it. And you no, know, they've told me, hey, Gary, really, no, thank you for that because you really put me at ease. And I stopped thinking about all this other stuff and I was just able to focus on the song. And at the end of the day, the song and the sound is priority number one for me. And that's how I've always dealt with it. That's that's my approach. And if you really zero in on on making them comfortable, uh, their performance really helps. Yes, it get really you, shines. Gets you ninety percent of the way on the sound. So it doesn't matter what mic you use. It doesn't or, matter you know. what mic. And sometimes you know, you know, I think sometimes I'm guilty of it. I get so caught up on the gear. And the plug-in and the this and then that. And at the end of the day, it's about the talent. Whether it's a singer, a musician, or you know, whoever it is, it's whatever you get, the end result will only be as good as the source. So if you don't get the source the best that it can be, it doesn't matter what goes goes on down the road. And I I try not to get too caught up in the in the gear so much as making sure that whatever we have on hand, I can get the job done. And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of how been my approach to it. Like, I don't go in the studio saying, oh, we can't do the vocal because I don't have my 1073 in it. No. I said, what do you have? And they say, okay, you have this mic, you have that mic. Okay, put, put up both mics. I get the artist going there. I said, could you warm up for me? While they're warming up, I listen to it, switch between the mics. Okay, this one works. Let's go with this mic. And that's it. It's all these fine details. You know, you could get schooled and all the technical you want, but it's that human interaction. Yes, yes, that's key. That's key because even when I mix, I know people know me or been to my seminars, hear it, and pray, oh, this guy's always saying it. But when I'm, even when I mix, even though I'm a technical guy, you know, I'm very good with computers and, and all that and the science of it. But when I mix, I focus more on the feel, more so. Like, for instance, a question I get asked a lot in seminars, so what frequency do you boost on a kick? Um, depends on the song. They look at me. What do you mean? Depends on what the song needs. One song might need the kick boosted at 60. Another one might need to cut, I mean, boosted 100 or cut at 100. It all depends on what I'm feeling from the song. Do I make the, the bass dominant or the kick dominant? Is the kick supposed to be loud or softer? Like, it all depends. A lot of people have misconceptions that, there's like a formula and there's just one way of doing things and it's not. It depends each song. I approach each mix differently. Yeah, you know, 90% of the time you start with the drums, the bass, guitars, keys, backgrounds, and lead. But there's times that I mix songs where I'm listening to it. I say, you know what? I need to put up that guitar and her vocal. Let me get her vocal sounding really lush. 
And then I keep bringing in the guitar from time to time. And then once I get the vocal where I think it sounds right, then I, I work on the guitar. And then, then I fit the rest of the track around that because to me, that's the essence of the song. Instead of just going, okay, let me work on the drums. Let me work on the bass. Let me da 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 And then technically what I did was correct, but the song doesn't feel the same way. It feels kind of static. So I did mm-hmm. it the opposite way. I did the vocal and the guitar first, and then I filled all the other stuff around it. And the client was really happy. Producer was happy. Everybody was like, wow, it sounds great. Because I did it by feel instead of doing it by, you know, by numbers. I don't mix by numbers. Like people say, oh, when I paint or draw, I don't draw by, I don't mix by numbers. I I don't even look at the knob when I'm turning. I just listen and just, and okay, that feels right. And just go on to the next sound. And, and um, when I'm mixing, I like to listen, make adjustments in context. Like a lot of people I see when I'm mixing, they have stuff soloed and they're EQing and compressing. I'm like, okay, that's great. It sounds great by itself, but how does it fit in with the rest of the mix? So I always mm-hmm. compress and EQ, listening. Like when I start off, I always do a rough balance first. Listen to it a couple of times, make a couple of adjustments, a couple of notes that I know I have to go and, okay, I have to fix this part, fix that part. And then once I do that, and then I start to actually, you know, tweaking the sounds and stuff like that. But I always do it in the context in the mix. The only time I solo is in the very, very beginning when um, I'm checking all the tracks to make sure there's no glitches, dropouts, buzz, noise, or anything like that. Then I solo and I listen the track down to see, you know, if there's anything that I have to do, any kind of surgical mix um, fixes to. And a byproduct of doing it that way is that each sound now gets imprinted in your head. So when you're mixing, you're aware of the sounds that are there and 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 the role they're supposed to be playing in, and um you have like a mental picture of where they're supposed to sit and stuff like that. It, it helps me. I don't, I, I'm not saying this for everyone, but that's, that's, that's how I do it. Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They of course offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. Tell me about Miami. And did your did your family start in New York? Or, yeah, it started or? in New York. And how was that transition from New York to Miami for you and the family? It's good. Um, I think this is it's a nice place. Depending on, it's like with anywhere you go to. If you if you uh, have kids and stuff like that, you want to make sure they go to good schools and stuff like that. And the school district where we live is pretty good, and the kids are happy here. They have friends. They're doing well in school, and we have all the conveniences of New York. The the main difference I know from Miami compared to New York is that in New York, everything is close. You can walk out the building, walk down the block, go to the store, stuff like that. Walk down the block, jump on the train, get where you want to go. Here, you need a car. Everything is like spread out. They have everything. Everything is here, but you need to jump in a car and drive. It's like way more spread out than New York. What about your work-life balance? How has that developed over the years? With that, the digital aspect of it has helped a lot. Also, with me being here and I've, I've... I'm still, I'm, I'm going to be truthful here. I'm yeah. still struggling with the balance. <laughs> okay. That's a never ending, <laughs> that's a never ending thing. But it's much easier for me now to, to, to find a balance between family and work than it was earlier in, in the first half of my career. It was yeah. very hard. Like my first, my first born, my daughter, like I, I hardly saw her in the, fir- the first four years of her life. I hardly saw her. And I was like, I'm not going to go through that again. So when I got here, I was working, going to the studio and stuff, but I also used a spare bedroom and I set up like a mixing suite for me. So with certain projects, I could just do it at home. And that's, and that's you know, that's what I did. Now, don't get me wrong. I still prefer to work in the studio. My preferred way of working is what, we call, what I call a hybrid mixing, where I have uh-huh. the Pro Tools rig feeding into the SSL or the Neve, and I mix on the board with the outboard and all that stuff. But um, to be honest, a lot of the times... Between scheduling and budget, I can't do that. So I figured out a way how to get close to the same sound, 
mixing in the box. And a big part of that is um, the plugins. The, the quality of the plugins have gotten so much better. The main plugins I use are, is uh, UAD, SoftTube, and uh, Metric Halo. The main ones that I use is, is those three. You mentioned, you know, that first part of your career, you hardly saw your your, your daughter. Uh, yeah, and that, that, that bothers me to this day. I didn't like that. But at the time, I was working 100 hours a week and traveling all the time. So, you know, it's just one of those things. I started a family late because in the early part of my career, I realized it's not that I couldn't afford to have a child, but I wouldn't be able to be there for the child. So I waited yeah. for a while before I had had a child. It seems easier as we get older too to to be a little more discriminating about what work we take and what work we don't take. In the beginning, I was taking everything. I was doing every and anything because I was just so hungry. Just to, I just wanted to work and do stuff like. But one thing I never did was I never demeaned myself, uh-huh. and I never undervalued my work. Like. I didn't go around doing stuff for, for free and all that stuff just to get in the door because I knew that wasn't the way to go. That That's not the way to go because what happens, and I've seen it happen to people I know, is that if you do free work or cheap work to get in the door, once you get in the door, you say, okay, I've arrived now. I'm at a certain level. I got these names under my belt, my credit, you know, my discography and this and that. Now I can charge appropriately. As soon as you start doing that, you get pushed to the side and they go find a, another guy that was doing the same thing, that is doing the same thing that you used to do. And the cycle continues. I've seen that going on and I'm, I refuse to be a part of it. I'm like, to me, what we do, we're adding value. Like someone like me, like this makes 30 years plus that I'm doing this. I'm not a 19-year-old kid going to full sale that's trying something. I know what I'm doing. I'm bringing a lot to the table. It's not just about turning the knob. My knowledge, experience, and everything else I'm bringing to the table. And if I feel like what I'm bringing is worth a certain amount, then that's what it's worth. I'm not going to devalue myself or demean myself to just so I can get on the project because it starts a downward spiral. And, and I feel that because some people are doing that, it kind of uh, devalues the whole industry as a whole. I don't want this to come, you know, say this the wrong way, but I've seen a huge difference from when I started to now that mm-hmm. when I started, like engineers were held in very high regard. Not so much as we weren't worshiping internet, but they would look like, okay, he's the engineer. He's going to, he's going to make, we make us sound good. Like he's going to make our music sound good or vocals. He's going to make the song right. Now it's more like, uh, I don't need you. I got a laptop. I got the waves bundle. I'm good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, no, it still needs a professional touch to make it be the best that it can be. I try to stress that to people. And some people listen, and, 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 but some people don't. They, don't. they still don't feel. And I've also had issues where, you know, I'll tell them, okay, this is what my rate is going to be to do this. And they go, I'm not paying you that much. That's too much money. I just go down the street. A friend said he'll do it for one-tenth that. Or, you know, he'd do it for 50 bucks. And I'm like, okay. Then a month later, they come back to me. Um, listen, I, you know, we don't have that much left in the budget, but I really appreciate if you could do the single for me and blah, blah, blah. I said, what happened to Fred? It didn't work out. I was like, okay. You know what I mean? I, if, I told you what my rate is. If you're willing to pay the rate, I'll do it. But I'm not going to devalue myself to help you out when I told you initially what was needed and how I could get it done for you and stuff like that. And I, I love that, that, that you say that because it, it, I think a lot of people feel like they need to cave with great respect to artists, you know, without the artists, I mean, we'd be doing other things in audio and not necessarily music when, when it, if we're talking about music, but I think artists sometimes can be very manipulative in, in particular situations like that. I'm not, you know, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody in particular, but I hate that when people say, yeah, I know you told me this and I went and I did this and now we don't really have any money left. Can you do it for this much? Right. Oh God, that pisses me off. But I I love that you, you, you stick to your guns and, and you, you, you say, no, this is, this is the rate. End of story. Have you ever owned a studio in all of these 30 years? No, nah, I never did. I actually, <laughs> I'm actually considering it now, but 
I've just been so accustomed to how I was having somewhere to work and, you know, because back when I started, you know, the label took care of everything. Like, you know, you say, okay, we need to mix a record. Okay, book sound and sound, books, um, you know, soundtracks or quad or whatever it is. And we go in and we get it done. I get paid, the studio gets paid. And I kind of guess it's because I came from that world. But also um, one of the main reasons why I didn't do it is that, like I said, it goes back to the family life balance. I figured if I if I opened the studio, I would never be home. <laughs> I would always, because I always, now not only would I be an engineer, I'd be a business owner. So I'd have mm. to be there from morning till night, make sure everything is okay. When the client is coming, especially the big client, I'll make sure that the car service and all the um, stuff they want on their rider is there and this and that. I've been in studio so many, so many times and I've been around people and I've talked to studio managers and all that stuff. And it's a lot of work. It takes a team effort. It takes a lot of work. It takes a good staff. Not just mm-hmm. any staff. It takes a good staff down to the interns. If the interns are not on the same page as you are, they can make the studio look bad. And I just decided that as much as I wanted to have my own studio, I was going to keep things the way they are, and this would give me more free time to do the other things that I feel are important in my life also. Have you ever had a manager throughout these years? Yeah, I've had a manager. Do you prefer having a manager, or, or does it work better yeah, without I, for Yeah, I like having a manager because um, I preferred it because uh, I was able to focus on being an engineer. I didn't have to... Yeah be doing phone calls and emails and meetings and all this other stuff because that takes up a lot of time too. But, you know, you have to kind of go with the flow and how things are and how things are, um, you know, it depends on the situation. But uh, I think a manager is important and they play a good, play a, a very good role. Also allows you to, to, to always be the good guy. I can say <laughs> yes to everything and then let him say no. What do you look for in a manager? Someone that's willing to to work with you, who really listens and really understands who you are and what you're about. And it's not just about the money because, you know, that could also hurt you in the long run. If it just seems like it's just about the money, then it kind of, for me, it kind of takes away from what I represent and who I am because I'm not just doing it for a check. I'm doing it because I actually like what I'm doing. But at the same time, I have bills to pay. I have responsibilities. And I like to work on projects that I like. <laughs> I don't want to get stuck on a bunch of projects that I don't like. Like, you know, I've been lucky. That's one thing I'm, I, you know, I find that I'm grateful for. That I've been lucky to work with a lot of very talented and exceptional people. And I'm still doing that. A project that I'm on right now, I can't mention the name because of NDAs. But um, there's someone that I've known for many years, and they just recently reached out and were like, listen, I'm doing this project, and I need your touch on it. Could you please help me with it? And I was like, okay. And they said, okay, what's, how much is it going to be? And I told them the rate. And they were like, oh, okay, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, so I, I like the artists. I like the music. They're paying me. You know, what's not to like about the situation? That's This is one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those artists that appreciates what you bring to the table. She knows my history and she appreciates what I bring to the table. And she knows that I'll make her sound amazing. So, you know, it, it is what it is. And I'm not bragging. I'm just, because yeah. I found that when I'm working on stuff and I really like the artist and I really like the music, I'm like really liking the whole situation. That's when I do my best work. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio, who not only help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible, but they make some incredible microphones at working class prices. So check them out. They're at roswellproaudio.com. And if you want to really help the cause, when you check out, there's a discount box. Make sure that you use the code WCA free ship when you're checking out and you'll get free shipping. And that'll let them know that you heard about them on Working Class Audio. That's roswellproaudio.com. Do you have a perspective on on age and 
and being an engineer in the, in the world of music, like, is, you know, is, do you ever feel like there's, uh, you know, we have a lot of older, well-respected engineers uh, and audio professionals in our world. So do you think people tend to respect people more as they get older or do you think that they disregard them and want to work with y the young, hot, you know, up and coming person? So it's kind of double-edged sword. I still meet people who are like, oh man, so great to meet you and this and that, you know, half the song, half, half the songs on my iTunes playlist, you know, you worked on and this and that. And then I meet people like, man, you're old school. You don't even know what, what this is or what we're trying to do. You know, you're not on my page and this and that. I'm like, okay, well, tell you what, why don't you let me do one and then we could decide whether or not I'm not a fit for this. Some of them let me do it. And after I do it, they go, oh man. All right, all right, all right. I was wrong, I was wrong. But some of them's like, nah, I just get this other guy to do it, you know. He's 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 um young like me, you know what I'm saying? He's he's on he's in the zone and blah blah blah, and he's much cheaper than you. Like, okay. Good luck. I don't argue, I don't argue with 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 them anymore. I just state my side of it and tell them how I feel about it and stuff like that, and that's it. And I'm never no matter how disrespectful they get, I always take the high road, no matter what. I always just take the high road. Some artists I've worked with, young guys, amazing. Some others, they're just disrespectful from the moment they walk in the door. And I just always take the high road, no matter what. Because that's something that I've always learned. Like, the client is always right, even when they're wrong. So I just let them take the high road. And I still do a good job recording, editing, mixing, whatever I'm required to do. Because, you know, I just feel that me getting into an argument with them or me returning the disrespect is not good for anyone. It's not helping the situation, and it also gives me a bad name. I have a, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in the industry this long, and I have a very good reputation. I would like to keep that. Yeah, I, I got to ask you if you're in a situation where somebody disrespects you in the studio. I'm sure that that affects you to some degree. How do you keep your cool? How how do you keep your your mind focused on? Well, okay, that guy just really said some awful things how do i stay focused a big part of that for me like i said is you know when i was first learning how to be an engineer all aspects of it because as you know it's not just about the technical we have to be psychologists sometimes we have to either be the brother the father you know what i mean the um the priest in the confessionals <laughs> like we have to be like <laughs> be like gonna be the rabbi yeah right right exactly so um that's part of it. Another part of it is that I do I do um, martial arts, and it teaches you to stay calm under all situations. It's not like in the movies where they portray the martial arts as this aggressive jerk who goes around kicking you know everybody's facing. They teach you how not to fight, how to defuse situations, stuff like that. So that helped me a lot, and I stay calm, and that that makes some people nervous because they're ranting and raving and 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 acting like they're going to come at you and you're just sitting there calm and they stop and think like, oh, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't mess with this guy because he looks like he might do something or he knows something because he's just sitting there calm with this little smile on his face. Like, it just kind of helps. And then I just talk to them. Some people that I've gotten to, not altercations, but, you know, they've come in the studio being disrespectful. By the end of the session, we're best friends because of me just taking the high road and talking to them. Because sometimes what it is, the artist has had a bad day. You know what I mean? They just had a breakup with their with their longtime partner, or they had a fight with their um with their um you know significant other over their child. They were supposed to do something with their child, and then the label tell them, "No, we booked the studio. You have to go to the studio." And blah blah blah. You never know. You never know. They got robbed. Like I've heard so many stories. You never know what they're going through. So I kind of keep that in my mind. So listen, this guy is having a bad day, and he needs to vent right now. So yeah. let him vent. And stuff. And a couple of times I've told him, listen, I'm really loving the anger you got right now. Yo, let's get that on the mic. I <laughs> said, so go in there and just, yo, just, just let it out. Let's get capture that rage, man. Let's do it. And and they do it. And when they're done with the song, they're like, man, I feel so much better. And I say, yeah. <laughs> and this and that. So it's just, like I said, it's like a psychology thing. You just have to talk to them. I'm not trying to play mind tricks or anything like that. It's just... um. I have to do what I feel is best to make sure that the song gets done 
and captured in the best way. I'm not there to pick fights or start fights and start arguments and, and stuff like that. And that's not what it is. You know, I'm about the music, the vibe, the creativity. Music's supposed to be fun, not not fighting. Yeah. You also seem to have a great sense of empathy. And you, you mentioned something uh, just now saying, you know, you don't know what the other person's going through. And I have to credit my wife, uh, I've, you know, with our kids, you know, they'll come home and, you know, they'll, they'll vent about, you know, oh, this kid at school, he did this thing. And my wife's always, well, you, you just don't know what's going on for them. You don't know what's going on at home. You don't know if they're having a, a rough day or an argument with the parent or did they, you know, are they getting enough to eat? Is it, you know, all these things. And I love I love that you said that because really at the end of the day you just got to you know stay cool take the high road like you said I think that's super important that's that's some great advice we're just about out of time and I want to ask you uh what do you do you mentioned one thing you mentioned martial arts but what are some of the other things that you do to stay focused and to keep making yourself better as an engineer uh as a human being Besides martial arts, try to meditate sometimes. One of the main things I do is that every day, even if it's just for five minutes, I try to take time out in the day to just kind of just relax and just kind of take my mind off things, keep the stress off, and um, like do things, you know, like it could be something simple, reading something, reading an article, reading a book, go for a walk, go for a run. Like I find that sometimes we get so caught up in the rat race, as they call it. Mm-hmm that we don't stop and take time for ourselves. And I think that's very, very, very important for us to do so that we could lead long and productive lives and be the best person that we can be for ourselves and for those around us. And, you know, that's just my attitude on it. I, I, I try not to stay around too much negativity, getting too much negativity and stuff like that. Let's kind of like keep away from it, which is hard to do because as soon as you turn on the TV between the news, you know, the media and the um, reality shows and all that stuff, it's hard. So I just try to, you know, just take a break from it because once you get caught up in that and you're constantly being bombarded with it, it becomes you. And I, I so I just try not to let it be, become. Sometimes it just be like on a weekend, I just go catch a movie, just escape for two hours. Mm-hmm. And when I come out and I get back in the studio, you know, I'm ready to work and I get the song done quickly and that's it. You know what I mean? But the martial arts helps a lot because when I'm doing that, I'm not thinking about anything else but that moment. I think now with the social media thing, it's like everyone gets so caught up in capturing the moment that we forget to live the moment. So we need to get back to live in the moment. Like, what I do when I take pictures for social media, I'll take the picture and that's it. I just keep moving. I say, oh, man, that's nice. Take a picture. Or they say, yeah, you need to take a picture in the studio. Okay, whatever. Here, here's the phone. And I just keep working. <laughs> I don't even, the assistant takes a picture. I, I just keep working. I don't even pay attention. Then later on, I look at it. I like this one. I don't like that one. Like, All right, I'll post this one. And I'll do that like the next day or something. I don't even, because, you know, a lot of people I see what they do. They take a picture and then they sit there editing stuff and blah, 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 and then posting it. I'm like, you just spent 10 minutes doing that and you're missing everything that's going on. Like, you know, enjoy what we're doing right now. <laughs> and, yeah. and and don't worry about the, the posting and all that stuff because, you know, yeah, I understand it's relevant and it's the way things are now and stuff like that because I I was dragged into the whole social media thing. You know, I, I, I wasn't into that. I was always the guy behind the guy. You know, I'm more of a support person. I yeah. didn't like being in the limelight and all that, but what was happening is that because the market has changed, uh, the industry is changing. It's like basically out of sight, out of mind. So I had to make myself visible so people be aware of of me, you know, who I am and what I do and and stuff like that. And it's it's working out. I'm not going to lie to you that it doesn't have benefits, but at the same time, I don't let it overtake my life. It's just another asset, you know, another another tool for what I do and another way I can share knowledge with people and stuff like that and, you know, change and share my, my perspective on life, but I don't let it become the end all to be all of, of that's not the priority. That's just one small aspect of who I am and what I do. Sage advice. 
Gary, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I love your advice. I love your perspective. And uh, thank you again for taking the time to to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure. It was great meeting you also. It was great talk. I really uh, appreciate you taking the time out to, to listen to me. I don't get to talk shop much, but had a very good time. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, same here. All right, take care, man. Gary Noble. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, a lot of great information and uh, sage advice there. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Before we sign off, I want to encourage you to stop on by our sponsors' websites. They help make the show possible. I'm talking about Audio-Technica, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, The License Lab, and Roswell Pro Audio. also want to thank our friends Cliff Truesdale and Chuck Smith. And I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate the fact that you come and listen to me ramble once a week. Spread the word, tell all your friends. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.